This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everyone. From wherever you're joining us in the world, I want to welcome you to our celebration and discussion tonight. My name is Rohana, and I'm a Critical Resistance Oakland chapter member. I'll be your MC for this evening. So tonight, we are celebrating Juneteenth. We're so excited to have Charlene Carruthers and Mark Lamont Hill here to share their insights and wisdom with us and to help organize us towards a liberatory future in the circumstances that we're in during this moment. I feel really fortunate to share space with you all and with our speakers and movement partners tonight. So Critical Resistance is happy to host this evening. For folks who might be new to CR, we're a volunteer member-led campaign and project-based organization. And because the prison industrial complex is so complex, we know that it manifests differently according to location and scale. So we're organized into local chapters to be able to do that work. So Critical Resistance entered into this moment that we find ourselves in with some strong campaign and coalition work. And that's starting with last year's win against the largest police militarization training program in the world. That was known as Urban Shield and was happening here in the Bay Area. The Bay also successfully stopped the construction of a new jail in San Francisco in 2016. And we won a huge victory just recently in May, this year by pushing the Board of Supervisors to commit to shutting down the decrepit existing jail at 850 Bryant. So this vote was secured in May in the midst of calls to release folks from jails due to COVID-19. So we saw a lot of our comrades on the inside were falling ill. Down in our Los Angeles chapter, we organized alongside the LA No More Jails Coalition and the Justice LA Coalition to win a decade-long campaign against both a proposed mental health jail and a new women's jail in the county. The Portland chapter also just made a huge step in their campaign and have gotten commitments from decision makers in their region to disband the anti-gang unit of the Portland Police Bureau. They also, in the midst of this momentum that we've been feeling in this moment, have seen that the city agreed to end both school police and transit police. So that's been a huge win in the Portland chapter as well. All of CR's campaigns are done in coalition, and it wouldn't be possible without the work of our movement partners and organizing together to get these wins. And I think that CR and our organizing partners have seen for decades now that abolition is a winning strategy, and we're really excited to talk about that more tonight. So we see that when we use an abolitionist praxis that we do win, it's really exciting in this moment to see so many people joining us live and that more and more people are understanding abolition as a practical organizing tool and a winning strategy. So as I mentioned, I'm from Oakland, California. I'm in the Oakland, the Oakland chapter of Critical Resistance, and this is situated on occupied Ohlone land. So I wanted us all to take a grounding moment to honor the indigenous people of the land that you're calling in from. So we'll take about 10 seconds of silence for that. Great. Thank you for grounding together. 
I think the last thing that I want to touch on before we move into some of our videos of our movement partners, and I'll introduce Maisha, um, we do have a ton of people on the line. So I want to go through some housekeeping. We have Haymarket helping us out on the tech side. John is going to be our back-end facilitator, making sure that our, our um, event is smooth tonight. So please be patient with us if we do have any technical issues. We're going to try and sort them out as quickly as we can. Some things that you can do yourself is if your stream gets choppy, um, it might help to reduce your image quality. You can hit the YouTube chat if you need help with that. Um, also, if it gets a little choppy, you can refresh and reload your page. And if you, for some reason, get kicked off, just navigate back to the Haymarket YouTube and you'll be able to join us again. Perfect. So before I introduce Maisha Quint um, to begin our program, we're going to play some videos that were created for this event by our movement partners, the Black Organizing Project, and All of Us Are None. So John, could you roll those videos? Greetings, brothers and sisters. My name is Ken Oliver, and I'm the Policy Director at Legal Services for Prisoners with Children, All of Us Are None. I'm both humbled and honored to be here with all of you and my friends at Critical Resistance as we give pause to this very historic moment and celebrate June 19th, 1865 and the alleged freeing of our ancestors from Chateau slavery. It's unfortunate that I'm forced to use a word like allegedly because I think today we're sharing a lot of the same spaces and having a lot of the same conversations that our ancestors had more than 150 years ago. It's unfortunate because black lives daily are forced to live at the crossroads of life and death situations at the hands of law, law enforcement. I think now more than ever, it's important for all of us in this community to understand the difference between reform and revolution. It's important for us to understand that our failure to force the dismantling of the systems that harm us is our endorsement of the very same systems that bring us pain. One of the systems that brings us the most pain, we all know, is the carceral state or the prison industrial complex. All of us are none in legal services for prisons with children has been on the forefront of ending that system for more than 40 years. One of the ways uh, that we've done that recently is we brought an end through a class action lawsuit to mass solitary confinement in the state of California, which resulted in more than 4000 people being released. Some of those people had been in solitary confinement for decades. Uh, hundreds more were released as a result of the work that we did. Uh, we were also successful and on the forefront of ending the practice of shackling pregnant women and women while they were giving birth. Uh, we're very proud of that accomplishment. Uh, and it was a win for both us and women uh, who happen to be incarcerated. One of the current campaigns that we're working on is to restore voting rights uh, for people who are on parole in the state of California. We're also in knee deep in the trenches of a fight to remove slavery and involuntary servitude, not only from the Constitution in California, but from the 13th Amendment on a national level. So these are just a few of the fights that we take on daily. And we welcome all of you at any time to come by the Freedom of Movement Center in Oakland and see how we fight to restore the civil and human rights of both the currently incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people and how we plan to dismantle the prison industrial complex one bite at a time. In the meantime, we enjoy being in the trenches of the struggle with you and enjoy this celebration and hope we, we can enjoy this celebration with you in full. Thank you. Peace family, my name is Des and I'm a member organizer with Black Organizing Project. 
Happy Juneteenth to everybody out there and to all our brothers and sisters who stand in solidarity with us. Thank you so much. We hope that you continue to stand with us while we continue to fight and push the narrative that our ancestors were pushing um, for true liberation and true autonomy for black and brown folks. Juneteenth is an amazing celebration, but the work certainly did not end back then, and the work is certainly not over today. We are standing as an organization and calling for the full elimination of police in our schools. We are hoping that you guys continue to stand with us while we push this narrative and we change and challenge the idea of safety, especially on our school campuses. Our students deserve all the necessities that they require, like counselors, clean water, and all the things that seem like a no-brainer, yet we still have districts like ours in Oakland who fund millions into the policing and surveillancing of our students, rather into the necessities that they truly need. So again, this fight is certainly not over. Juneteenth, we celebrate you. Ancestors, we celebrate you. But community, we call that you continue to stand with us, stand with Black Organizing Project, and call for the full elimination of police in schools and the end of contracting with police agencies so that we can provide our Black and Brown students true sanctuary and true safety on their campuses. Also, look out for our George Floyd resolution, which is going up for vote June 24th at the school board meeting, where we will be pushing for complete removal of school police. We are going to win this, you guys, and we will be the first in the nation, and the country is only going to have choice but to follow suit. So stand with Black Organizing Project for complete removal of school police, and you can also stay tuned with us and get updates at blackorganizingproject.org. Happy Juneteenth, y'all. Thanks for standing in solidarity. Peace. All right, that was great. Thank you so much to the Black Organizing Project. Nakia, thank you for hooking us up with that video. Thank you to LSPC and all of us are none. Ken, thank you so much for that contribution. Um, we wanted to say to the Black or Organizing Project that we wholeheartedly stand with you in your campaign to get police out of schools. For folks who are based in the Bay Area, please follow Bob's campaign, join them. They have a ton of momentum right now um, and they need organizing support to, to win getting police out of our schools to protect our youth. Um, thank you again to our longtime national and local movement partners, All of Us or None. It's been a pleasure working to fight to end the prison industrial complex side by side with y'all for, for 20 years now. Um, so I think the last thing that we're going to do before we move into our program, I'm really humbled and excited to introduce Maisha Quint. Um, I'm just personally starting to get to know Maisha, but I feel like I already consider her a movement elder and a CR auntie. Um, Maisha went to her first CR conference in 1998 as a high schooler. So she's been in the game since CR started. I'm going to read the beautiful bio that she provided so everyone can get to know her. So Maisha was born and raised in the Bay Area, where her organizing has taken deep roots. She's been a staunch anti-prison organizer since high school, and through her work in the Bay, she worked for seven years with legal services for prisoners with children. She's taught poetry for four years at UC Berkeley with the June Jordan's Poetry for the People program. Maisha was also a collective member of the Eastside Arts Alliance for close to 10 years. She's worked as a program officer for the Libra Foundation, organized with the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, Oakland Sin Fronteras, Committee to Free the San Francisco Eight, Friends of Marilyn Buck, Stop the Gang Injunctions Coalition, and several other grassroots organizations and campaigns. 
So right now, Maisha is a Cave Canon Poetry Fellow. She serves on the board of, of excuse me, Casa Justa Just Cause and is an advisory board member for the Center for Political Education. And I'll just say Maisha has been working in solidarity with critical resistance for, for 20 years now. So Maisha, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Rahana. I'm very honored to participate in this incredible evening. Who look at me? So begins the first poem of June Jordan's Things I Do in the Dark, published in 1977. So when I was thinking about how to introduce Charlene, I immediately, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, thought of June's poem. A radical organizer's work is as much about unearthing as it is agitation, making visible buried histories that through cr critical excavation show us new possibilities for how we engage in revolutionary struggle and how we engage with one another. Firmly rooted in the Black radical tradition, Charlene's work demands us to unearth, to look. She illuminates a through line from centuries ago maroon societies to present day. She demands us to look, to see the brilliant Black, queer, and feminist organizing that has too often been marginalized to the detriment of our movements and consequently our liberation. Who look at me? For the past 19 days, we have witnessed sustained uprisings from every single state in the US and multiple countries around the world. Uh, my homie and comrade Kali Akuno said that he attributes many of the thousands of people out on the streets to Charlene's work, unapologetic, a black queer and feminist mandate for radical movements. If anyone knows Kali, he doesn't exaggerate though. For so many of us, from those who have spent their lives dedicated to liberatory struggle, to folks brand new to organizing, unapologetic has been another kind of through line, perhaps even a lifeline, a manifesto that we must make sense of, discuss, critique, and pass along. It is a book that demands rigor, for we cannot fully know what we are looking at or facing if we have not studied. It is a book that has allowed us to see so much more than what we thought was possible, a book that rendered many of us whole. Charlene writes, I bow in deep deference for my ancestors for being at my back and reminding me that change is not only possible, it is inevitable. Ashe to Marsha P. Johnson, James Baldwin, and Tony Cade Bambara. Ashe to Risi Taylor, Erica Garner, and June Jordan, who writes, who look at me? Who see? I am Black, alive, and looking back at you. To everyone joining us tonight, I am proud to introduce Charlene Carruthers. Wow. <laughs> My goodness. Thank you so much um, for that introduction and the words that you just shared. Um, it's a blessing and an honor to be here with you all tonight and also to celebrate the work of critical resistance. Like I'm able to talk about this and do the work that I do in so many ways because of the work that you all have done. And thank you to everyone who is here tonight uh, in support of critical resistance and in support of the both political strategy and vision for abolition of the prison industrial complex. So this is absolutely a fundraiser to support their work, critical resistance work to abolish the prison industrial complex. And as I get into this talk, you can visit criticalresistance.org and make a donation. OK, we want to raise all of the coins tonight. Also, thank you for having me and Mark today. I'm in deep gratitude for your work. I'm in deep gratitude to my ancestors who stewarded this land, to the indigenous peoples who have and continue to steward this land, 
and our elders today who have shaped much of my thinking and doing towards liberation. And to be honest with y'all, I'm like shaken in a way that I'm typically not shaken uh, when talking about these things and doing, having conversations like this, uh, because I'm in a personal moment of transformation. And I believe that our world is in another moment of transformation. And we are celebrating Juneteenth. Critical Resistance did an excellent job of giving us history in the event. And I'm going to say, of course, it again and again and again, because we can never tell our history too much or too often. We know that on June 19th in 1865, enslaved Africans in Texas finally learned that the formal institution, the formal institution of chattel slavery had ended in the United States. And, you know, many of us also are aware that this news was intentionally kept away from them for over for two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation actually became law. And since then, Juneteenth has become a day of celebration, a time to reconnect with our family and a time to take action. And we're continuing that work today, even in this moment. But before I get too far, I have a request for everyone. Pull out something you can take notes on, be it a pen, a pencil, a notebook, your phone, anything, because you might hear some new words tonight and I want you to jot them down and take some time to look them up after this. Because this is a lifetime journey, y'all. And you won't get everything answered or addressed today. We have to continue to do our self-study and community study uh, or collective study together. And my aim is to be as expansive as possible and to do as best as I, as I possibly can. But the work continues after this. So let's go back. Imagine that you particularly as, as uh, for the black folks on this call and people with uh, histories of, of enslavement, that you are no longer legally bound to be the property of another person. Imagine the emotions that they may have felt on that day, the possibilities they saw before them, what they visioned for future generations. And as they went out into the world, be it to the North or other places in the South, to seek out family slave, the family members that were separated from them by slaveholders. They quickly learned that the struggle for full human dignity would continue in farms, in schools, in tenements, in factories. These newly freed people embarked on a mass journey toward liberation, and they were not alone. Black people from the Caribbean migrated to this land too, leading and joining efforts to articulate and create Black liberation in their lifetime. They made connections to the African continent and across the Western Hemisphere and also in Europe. The Black radical tradition has always been global. And when I say Black radical tradition, I'm talking about a collection of cultural, intellectual, action-oriented labor aimed at disrupting and recreating social, political, economic, and cultural norms originating in anti-colonial and anti-slavery efforts. Simply put, it's a really big thing involving a lot of Black folks over the span of centuries here in the United States, across South America, across North America, across the Caribbean, across Europe, across uh, the continent of Africa, and one could definitely say even across peoples um, in, in Asia. It's a global, it's a global struggle. And so in many ways, Juneteenth marked a turning point in the charge for the Black radical tradition. A point where people in this country fought for their freedom, demanded their freedom, and they won. Nothing was handed to us. 
It was an organized demand to end title slavery. It wasn't simply the Civil War. People were resisting from the first time they were taken from them, their homes on the continent to the moment they were placed on ships, to the moment they landed in this hemisphere, to the moment they were on plantations until now. Our people have always fought. From Haiti to the Quilombos of Brazil to the maroon communities of Jamaica and South Carolina, freedom dreams became freedom making. Revolts and rebellions led by enslaved Africans marked the path forward. And what our people came through is bigger than any history book or film or TV show or anything can possibly hold. Change was constant. No matter somebody's station, there was an appetite for a new world. We are now at another turning point in the charge for the Black radical tradition and for all who are committed to collective liberation. We are all here today in a moment where more transformation is possible. We are living in the midst of a global pandemic that disproportionately impacts Black folks here in the United States and the Indigenous folks here in the United States. Y'all, we have a strong chance to completely reorganize power in our society. And I'm not just talking about the police. I'm talking about the business of abolition, which is an undoing and a redoing for the sake of our collective liberation. I'm talking about radically transforming how we deal with conflict, harm, and violence. I'm talking about moving from the brutal systems that create suffering and domination over the people and the planet. I'm talking about a world where when and if a global pandemic happens, it's actually addressed swiftly, humanely, and with deep, compassionate leadership. Where white supremacy and institutions that uphold these systems are no more. Where safety is redefined and not determined by your gender, your ability, your class, your race, your sexuality, or citizenship status. But it is instead determined by communities focused on meeting needs, creating joy, where pleasure is not shamed, but understood as a basic human need. Where everyone has what they need to eat, to have a home, clean water, to drink and clean air to breathe where power is held within and not over. A world where say her name is a political demand for black women to be seen, heard and named correctly and death becomes unnecessary. Because I know that even if all prisons and police fall today, we would still have to contend with the capitalism that is racialized and gendered. We would still have to deal with the scourge of patriarchal violence that prevents the vision of safety from becoming real for all of us. Y'all, I want nothing short of transformation for myself and the world we all live in. And I invite you to make that commitment too, because it's time, y'all. It's well overdue. The time is here. The time for transformation is right now. We see our people in the streets. We see our people feeding each other, making sure people have what they need, taking care of each other. Now is the time for us each to take stock of the choices we can make and organize the demands that we must move together. I work in this moment as we celebrate Juneteenth, a day of celebration and emancipation is to continue that freedom dreaming and that freedom making. And a part of that is advancing the long-term political vision, political vision and strategy of abolishing the prison industrial complex, which is this big, ugly, nasty thing, y'all. It's huge, it's huge. In some ways you can reach out and touch it. Right. You can see the monuments to punishment and carcerality in, in our communities and oftentimes outside of our communities because we know that they push them out of view in more ways than one. 
And just to define for folks who may be new to this, because I often I always use critical resistance's definition of the abolition of the prison industrial complex. Again, it's a political vision with the goal of eliminating imprisonment, policing and surveillance and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. And we're in a moment where people are questioning the ways in which our society is organized to actually deal with conflict, violence, and harm. Because we know that this big web of the prison industrial complex touches the lives of so many people, particularly people who are Black, Brown, Indigenous, or Native, people who are cash poor, people who are undocumented, people who are gender nonconforming, people who are disabled, all kinds of folks are disproportionately impacted by this. And while I am deeply, deeply inspired by these collective wins that we're seeing right now, uh, be it in Minneapolis, where the school board has voted to end their contract with police departments, in Denver and Portland, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing initial steps to of commitments to defund police budgets, to, to slash those budgets, and to actually put those dollars into our communities in places like Los Angeles and New York City. And, and I am ashamed and infuriated that this movement uh, has not also been seen by the mayor of Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She, she continues to drag and, and not listen to the will of the people. Uh, but <laughs> we remain steadfast in that work. Also in Minneapolis, the city council voted on their intent to disband the police department. Y'all, that ain't happened in the way it's happening here. It ain't happened. This is historical. This is momentous. People are spreading that organized demand to defund police and invest in our communities. We are calling for the defunding of policing as a pathway towards abolition and a pathway to fund quality public schools, health care, housing, jobs, and green energy. This marks a major and important shift, y'all. And I'm beyond grateful to the people, to the organizers, to the artists, the communication strategists, the healers, the policy folks, everybody making this happen. And I am also weighed down by what we still have to do. It is not possible to abolish the prison industrial complex without also abolishing systems, social norms, and institutions that uphold and reproduce patriarchal violence. Prison are systems of policing and surveillance, and they are patriarchy's tentacles. They are steely monuments to patriarchal violence, y'all. In the past week alone, two Black trans women have been reported dead. And they should still be here. And while we're out in the street saying, you know, say, say her name, say their names. Say, say their names. Dominique Sales and Rhea Milton should still be here. <laughs> they should still be here. If we are about the business of abolishing the systems that punish us, we have to be about the business of abolishing how they show up in our everyday lives. Because the same systems that promote mass incarceration and surveillance are connected to the systems and social norms that promote violence against Black people who are transgender. These systems sort people. They tell us what is good and moral what is, and what is not. They define these boxes of manhood and womanhood. You go here, you go there. And if you live outside of those lines, violence is certain for you. 
What good is it to break down the prison walls while my sisters can be killed in their home by someone who could be my relative? What good is it to end policing across law enforcement agencies while gender remains policed? Particularly black gender, black people's gender, often resulting in the harassment and death for black people who live well outside of what is valued within a white supremacist, anti-black, ableist, classist, cisgender affirming society. As Fannie Lou Hamer, prolific organizer, former sharecropper, turner up of shit, <laughs> said from Sunflower, Mississippi, told us, none of us are free until all of us are free. We have to completely reimagine safety and justice, y'all. Breonna Taylor was murdered in her own home by cops. She wasn't even safe in her own home. Laylene Polanco died while she was in solitary confinement. While they said they were keeping somebody safe from Laylene, Laylene wasn't safe. Domination is inside the prison walls and in our homes. Prisons and jails are sites of patriarchal violence for men too. Men too, y'all. Men in prisons are not exempt from this violence. Sexual violence, psychological violence, and physical violence are all perpetuated in prisons that are designed for men, too. This fight is for all of us. Our children in prisons, they call them juvenile detention centers or some other fancy things, but they are prisons for children. They experience this violence. No matter what their gender is, they experience this violence, too. People in immigrant detention centers experience this violence. All of these things are connected. As a Black feminist, I'm in commitment to make my work the business of the liberation for all Black people. When we say in defense of Black lives, Black lives matter, it don't mean anything if it's not about all Black people, even those who hurt us, even those who have hurt me, even those who have hurt you. It can't just be about some Black people. It has to be about us all. We can no longer be general in our stances against violence and only look to state violence. We fail Black people who are triply, doubly, quadruply oppressed on the margins of the margin. Incomplete stories lead to incomplete solutions. If we tell an incomplete story about the state of incarceration, the state of policing, the state of poverty, of violence, conflicts, and harm, we will continue to have incomplete solutions. Any solutions aimed at abolishing policing, because policing lives outside of law enforcement. We have police, policing in our hearts and in our activities and in our minds. Any solutions aimed at abolishing policing, prisons, and surveillance that fail to address patriarchal violence are false solutions. They are solutions that will not liberate us. They are solutions that will not bring the system down. There is no abolition of the prison industrial complex if we do not also abolish and end systems of patriarchal violence. We must look to what is happening in our homes, our mosques, our temples, our churches, our schools, our jobs. And of course, while those of us living in the United States have to lead work here, y'all, this is a global fight. From Chicago to Minneapolis, to Louisville, to Oakland, to Philadelphia, to Havana, to Palestine, to Cape Town, to Johannesburg, to Buenos Aires, to Colombia. I can name them all day. This is a global struggle. And every solution advanced here will not work around the world. 
We cannot replicate the same imperialist tendencies of the state that we see in places like Puerto Rico. The same imperialist tendencies that we see of corporations and wealthy individuals across the world. We cannot say that one size fits all, but what we can move forward are collective values. Prisons place, again, people where society say they should go. They disorder us away from our dignity. They take away and they put away. As Ruth Wilson Gilmore teaches us, the carceral system is about absence. Absence of people, absence of options, absence of, of, of openness for connection, even though connection remains, people still struggle and remain connected to their loved ones who, 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 who are uh, in prisons and jails across this country and across the world. And abolition is about presence. It is about presence of what gives us life. So if you are new to thinking about the abolition of the prison industrial complex, welcome, 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 welcome. We need you. I'm so excited to have you here. And for those of us who took up political commitments to abolition before this moment, I ask that you remember when you did not know what abolition was all about. Remember that time when you did not know. Remember when you were first introduced, I was first introduced uh, six years ago by my comrade Asha. I didn't even know it was a real thing. So may we have humility in our welcoming of people into this movement. May we have a, a, a curiosity. May we all remain curious so that we can go about the business of, lead, of building a new world. And as lesbian civil rights organizer Barbara Demon said, we cannot live without our lives. We cannot live without our lives. And that means each and every one of us. And we can all demand nothing short of transformation. We deserve nothing less than transformation. Each of us together can do the work needed to be in right relationship with each other and the earth and the land that we live on. It is time, y'all. It is time. So as I close, I'm going to read two poems because I started writing poetry recently. Uh, this pandemic gave me a lot of time to sit with my own stuff and shift it, um, how I express myself and how I even think about the world. So this first poem is titled For Nina. Nina Pop, Pop was a 28-year-old Black trans woman who was found dead in her apartment in Sykeston, Missouri. For Nina. Each time a sister is killed, and not enough know or care to say her name. Remember, this land is big enough. The internet is wide enough. There are enough words to petition and post. And still, imagination and will is too small to ring shout and demand justice for Nina Pop. Perhaps this is because such justice is inside and outside work. My people, Nina Pop is our business. She deserves more creativity, calls to action, love, and rage. And the second piece that I will read, I wrote the night that over a thousand people were arrested in Chicago. This was just, uh, I don't know, I lose track of time these days. Maybe two weeks ago at this point. And people were in the streets calling for justice for George Floyd. 
who was murdered right here in Minneapolis. They were calling for justice for Breonna Taylor, who was killed in Kentucky by a police officer. They were calling for justice for Tony McDade, who was killed in Tallahassee, Florida, killed by a police officer. They were calling for justice for Burkia Boyd, for Damo, for Ronald Johnson, for Laquan McDonald, and the names go on and on and on and on. And so I was deeply inspired by folks turning up all over the country and all over the world. And this piece is entitled, May We All, A Spell for Alchemists. May the names of loved ones taken fill quilts, sidewalks, and a billion throats singing out in rage. May our feet and wheels be pavement, keyboards ignite and create insatiable appetites for study and knowledge. May our echoes, water bubbles, and bald fists bounce off, break, and bang against monuments of nothingness. After all, we the people do not own them. May barriers shatter, leaving luxuries exposed for all to enjoy. May we all know in riots, in rebellion, in uprising, and revolution, there is mess and muck. There are plans and no plans at all here where our enemies reward absence. We make presence and abolition possible. Thank you. Black power, y'all. All power to the people, y'all. All power to the people. This is again a fundraiser to support work for critical resistance to abolish the prison industrial complex, that organizing work. And so go to criticalresistance.org and make a donation right now. And don't just take my word for everything I said. Get curious, do your own research, talk to your people because another world <laughs> is absolutely on its way. Thank you. All right, cool. I think I'm going to just start talking. <laughs> First of all, um, peace, everybody. This is Mark Lamar Hill. Charlene, I've been sitting here. Uh, it, you got me in my office shouting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in here shouting. I'm, I'm running around. I'm, I'm texting stuff, taking notes. Um, I, it's, it's, thank you. Thank you. Um, which, what you said today, um, was instructive and inspirational. Um, it was clear and cogent, but it also challenged us in, in so many ways that we need to be challenged and, and watching you work, watching you organize, watching you teach, watching you tonight. Um, it, I'm, I'm moved as I always and when you speak, you know, you are part of a long tradition of, of black women who have loved us and care for us and taught us and challenged us and led us uh, into new senses, of, new notions of possibility. And um, I'm honored to uh, to talk with you tonight and I'm honored to to learn from you. So just thank you and thank you for loving us so much. Of course. Yo, like <laughs> when they told me it was going to be me and you. I was like, awesome. <laughs> I, I highly respect you, Mark. And I, I see you pushing on so many fronts in so many areas. And 
I mean, I'm a straight up nerd. And so when you, when I learned that you were opening up Uncle Bobby's, I was like, of course, of course, the, <laughs> a place for you to, 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 you know, spread out the nerddom and also to create community. Like the vibe is dope there, right? The, the vibe is super dope. So I'm excited for our conversation and um, to, yeah, to get into this. So where, sh- where should we start? Uh, we we can start wherever wherever you want to start. I mean, you, you laid out so much interesting ground. You, you laid up so much interesting uh, groundwork um, in your in your um, in your remarks. But I think one of the, the two places that I think are really interesting uh, to start with. I'm trying to turn this this daggone. Uh, I'm not good with these daggone computers. I'm turning into an old man before my eyes. Uh-huh. Actually. Our elders actually much better at this than I am. I'm just bad at it. <laughs> uh, but um, the one, the first place is the origins of this. You know, the, yeah. traditions, the traditions out of which this emerges. Because we're at a moment where people are talking about abolition, and um, I'm I've watched other moments in the last few years get pushed and and, and co opted very very quickly. I remember even Me Too. I, I you know I'm in Philadelphia. I worked with Toronto Burke for years. And I watched when Me Too hit the mainstream and it was only through grassroots resistance and organizing we were we able to hold on to the mm-hmm. actual historical narrative, right? It was yep. <laughs> so I'm 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 very I'm very carefully watching um this abolitionist narrative. Um because for me, I mean, there is just no conversation about abolition in the United States and really in the world. Um without talking about the work of critical resistance and more exactly. specifically without the work of black women and black feminists. You know, you, you talked about freedom dreams in your in your 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 remarks. And you know, one of the things Robin Kelly talks about um is the role of black feminist collectives in particular, uh whether it's Combahi or or others, that helped yep. us dream of new possibilities because when black women and particularly black feminists have thought about liberation, they've never done it um in ways that were narrow. Although it would have been entirely legitimate in 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 a misogynist patriarchal world to say we are a collective or we are a movement or or, or we are a theoretical or we're a group of theorizers who are going to think about the liberation of women, girls and femmes. Mm-hmm. Reasonable. Right. Mm-hmm. But y'all ain't do that. <laughs> y'all, no. y'all said we got to liberate everybody. Right. And, and you said something that, that literally made me tear up. And you said we have to love everyone, even those that harm us. And we have to fight for all black people, even those that harm us. That's a hell of a moral achievement and moral agenda. Uh, but it's also a powerful political one. And those two things intersect. So for me, I just want to make sure that we're always and you've done it. I want to make sure we're always playing proper intellectual respect, which means that the yeah. ac- academics out there cite them. Don't just don't just That's tip right. your hat and, and then pretend that, that, that these ideas came out of your head. Um, we, right. should, we should be saying people like Joy James. We should be saying people like uh, uh, like Angela Davis. We should be play, saying people like uh, Ruth Gilmore. Uh, mm-hmm. And we could go on down the list. And we should go on down the list because these That's these right. things matter and they 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 are the foundation for the work that we're doing right now. Um, so that that was the first thing. And and, and, I, and I, I, please, I want to hear you about this too. I mean, mm-hmm. particularly around the way that Black feminists have dared us to dream and think about these things. Yeah, for sure. I. Oh my gosh, they I was actually talking with a homegirl of mine just like two that yesterday about the decision that the Combahee River Collective made to not be a separatist organization. Mm-hmm. And it was a conscious decision that this collective of black feminists, including black women, uh, black women and black women who were lesbians, 
saying we're not going to be separatists because we recognize that like this has to be about all black people. And they were organizing like in Boston during a wave of killings of women, um, womanhood over the years and grow there. Like there's still growth to do. Like in 10, 20 years, there's going to be, or not, maybe next week, there's going to be some younger person than me talking about some actually you need to go even bigger than you are. You ain't radical enough. Your ideas ain't revolutionary enough. And there's absolutely this awesome Black feminist tradition that I place people within as a tradition, whether or not they ID as Black feminists. So I place the Stonewall Rebellion and Marsha P. Johnson's role in that within the Black feminist uh, tradition, within the radical Black feminist tradition. I place, um, obviously, the work of Harriet Tubman who was a disabled Black woman within the radical Black feminist tradition. Um, Even the work that is happening today with Black folks leading um, work to close detention centers, I place that within the Black radical feminist tradition as well. And so it's not one that's perfect. Like the Black radical tradition is full of like some wild stuff too. Um, (laughs) Things that are not necessarily liberatory for all of us. So it's not a necessarily like a, 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 a blanket value statement to say that the Black radical tradition was always about the liberation of all people. It is, though, this like ongoing project that continues to expand what liberation means for all of us and, and what, what, it, what it looks like. I, I think that's what I'm finding so fascinating in this moment. You said at, at, toward the beginning of your remarks, you know, you talked about an opportunity to imagine the world differently, sort of to, to think about whole new social orders. Mm-hmm. Um, that for me is the most provocative um, and exciting piece of this moment. Mm-hmm. And, but, but also one that's daunting. You know, I've, yeah. I've, been, I've been writing a lot about uh, abolition and, and really trying to think about, I was thinking about the abolition in, in the context of school and thinking about how we can build schools that don't just, sort of cut off the pipeline from school to prison mm-hmm. but give us permission to believe that prisons aren't necessary. That's right. right? And and that's a that's a different project. Mm-hmm. And and I think about how our imaginations themselves are so heavily policed, how our imaginations themselves are so constrained uh by the prison. And as a result, it's nearly impossible for us to imagine future possibilities because we're so limited to the to the moment so so many of the great um you know radical revolutionaries particularly radical educators were tied not only into sort of marxist traditions and such they were also tied into uh uh the uh liberation the- theology i mean if you think okay. about like paulo Freire, Mm-hmm. You know, who was he was also in conversation with these other with these other people, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 the reason I say that, and, and also like Augusto Boal, right? When we think about theater, of the oppressed. I mean, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about every sector of our life has to be bound up in think in reimagining the world because every sector of our life right. is constrained by it. That's know? right. So so like when we talk about abolition now, one of the biggest challenges that I'm confronting uh, or being confronted by are people saying, yeah, but what does it look like? Yeah, but how does this yeah. Because our imaginations are so circumscribed by the moment. They're like, wait a minute, but what do I do when somebody kills me? What do I do? Mm-hmm. I, I was having this argument with a, a very prominent lawyer uh, about <laughs> Amy Cooper, 
Mm. Call the police. And, and, and her response was, we should make it a felony to call the police on black people. Right. Because that was mm-hmm. happening. And I'm like, OK, number one, <laughs> that law would be used for like one white person <laughs> for every right? 50,000 black people who would get it called on. <laughs> but but also. That presumes that we're still going to call be calling the police as a way to resolve a social conflict about putting a leash on a dog. Right. Exactly. We need police in the first place. But because we can only think about how to respond to the crisis, how to respond to the problem. All right. Well, we'll make it we'll, we'll add more penalties so that people won't misuse the police. Let's say wait, maybe maybe the problem is that Amy Cooper knew that in her back pocket was the state that she exactly. could weaponize at any given moment. How can we take that out of a, a sense of possibility? But mm-hmm. that shit, that, that's a whole other level of, of imagination. And there are even deeper levels than that that we got. Mm-hmm. So part of what I, I struggle with and I'm I'm I'm. I'm loving that you are also writing poetry because I feel like we need art, we need spiritual traditions, we need every aspect of our lives to to dare us to think of something different. And, and some days I feel really good about helping people imagine, and some days I'm like, yeah, we we're just so and we're so indebted to the prison that we can't we can't imagine the world without it. That's right. I mean, I I agree with you on so many levels. Um, and I want to, I have a question for you after I like share some thoughts. Um, the prison that like that, that is entwined and in our minds and how we understand what to do ha- has everything to do with the options that have been placed in front of us or the options that have been, you know, available to us for decades, yeah. even when we know that they don't really fully work. Like, I don't know any black people who aren't skeptical of the police at all. Personally, I don't know them personally. I know they exist on the internet, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know them personally. And so, and still people ask, so what do I do if somebody does this, if somebody does that? We spend so much time and there's so much money put towards uh, dealing with these things with uh, police and jail and prison. And we don't even oftentimes get the bandwidth or even are presented with the option of something different. And like, when you got time to imagine when capitalism is also on your neck, um, a capitalism that we know is racialized and gendered is on your neck and you got to work, you, um, or you don't have a job at all. (laughs) And that creates a whole nother thing. Uh, the imagination space. I don't think being able to imagine is a privilege. It should be a given that we have space to imagine. And I also think about like at, on Juneteenth, eighteen sixty-five. Like people still have the nerve. Oh, I would say on June eighteenth, before they got that good news, they still had the nerve to think that something else was possible. Yeah. Our people have always done freedom dreaming, right? And so, actually, the question I have for you, I want people to hear, is to talk about um, the importance of of not only centering but considering and having and thinking about how this country uh, treats our people and imprisons them because of their political work. So political prisoners. And, you know, we are not just, we're we're calling for the abolition of prisons at large. And that includes political prisoners. I think some of the recent victories that y'all have had in Philly are so monumental um, and freeing our people. And so what is the relevance of how the state intentionally targets um, our people? I mean, even think about, um, I even think about how they continue to do that to this day uh, with uh, the young man from uh, Ferguson, Josh, 
actually communicate with him. Like, why can't I remember his last name and I'll communicate with him? Um, I'm talking too fast. But what is the significance of how of, of, of people being in prison for political reasons and in our movement? And why should we care? And what do we need to do in this moment? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, because I, I think we can't disconnect those things. Right. Mm-hmm. All, all forms of it could, in a sense where I begin is again, following in a long tradition um, mm-hmm. is, is a, is a place of saying human, ca- the, the problem here is human captivity, right. Mm-hmm. And human confinement, right. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether it's on plantations, whether it's, I mean, we can go across the board, human, conf- the, the ways that humans have been confined against their will and particularly caging human beings is itself a moral atrocity. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's an ethical, contradiction and it's a political one. And so when we talk about abolition, we have to think about the political intersections of that. And we have to think specifically about the ways that people have been caged either directly for their political beliefs, right? Um, or as we saw from in, during, during the times of COINTELPRO until now, um, and, and we can even precede COINTELPRO, but I'm just thinking in terms of very specific, yeah. uh, tra- very transparent political programs, uh, how people were ra- were railroaded into uh, into cages uh, for their political beliefs. We we, we often celebrate uh, uh, the work and the contributions, extraordinary contributions of Asada Shakur, who also helps us think about abolition. Right. Um, and but Asada Shakur is a political prisoner, and mm-hmm. unlike in other countries where um, where political prisoners, where you can be a much more explicit, explicit political prisoner, um, the way that the United States has, has caged its political prisoners has been to railroad them, to, char- to charge them with things, or to overcharge them, right? To find something that is technically illegal, and but 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 doesn't necessarily cause harm, and then to overcharge them so that they end up caged. Um, th- let me take one step back so that I can make this make a little more sense. Um, the, the 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 way the carceral state works in the United States is that um, we use the, we use the carceral system to to resolve all of our social contradictions. We've sort of understood now uh, that we've used it to resolve the medical contradictions like drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use it to to resolve uh, mental illness, right? We, we take people from mental facilities, we put them on the street, and then we take these economic contradictions like homelessness and poverty, and we essentially make it illegal to be on the street or to be poor. Uh, and And so everything from drug addiction to mental illness to poverty, we put into cages, and we sort of have, have a way of framing and thinking about that. But even some of us who 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 would identify as liberal will say, "Okay, I get that." But they stop short. Liberals often stop short of conceding the fact that the reason that an Asada Shakur or a Jalil Muntakin uh, is in prison is not purely because of their it is because of not 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 those contradictions, but the fact that America cages its right as dissident voices, that America okay. takes its most radical voices and, and puts them away and tries to hide them for as long as possible, which is why we have a Mumia Abu Jamal who continues mm-hmm. to be in prison. The example you're talking about, which I think is an important one, uh with like Michael Africa or mm-hmm. or Debbie Africa or other members of the Move Nine, is that in nineteen seventy eight uh, you have you have members of the Move organization, uh, a, a naturalist, uh, radical re- revolutionary organization that was in Palton Village in Philadelphia, and they were involved in an interaction with the police that the police initiated, and the, and they were in in self defense, and they were incarcerated. Many given thir- oh, no, all of them were given thirty plus years, right? Mm-hmm. And 
including the women who were in the basement covering children because of the particular laws that we have. So we have spent the last three decades of four, four, oh my God, five, almost five decades fighting to get the move nine out. This is the first, this is the first killing. Last week in Philadelphia, when we tore down the Frank Rizzo statue and eventually got the mayor to get rid of it, when when the mural was erased, Frank Rizzo was was the mayor under that regime. And then you have uh, Wilson Good, the first black mayor who then bombs move a second time in, 19, in May of 1985 uh, and is the first uh, city, uh, the first mayor of a city to bomb its own citizens. And and so this is a form of this, this was political retribution. This wasn't for violating laws. This wasn't because of any harm that was done to anybody. It was because of po- politics. And we see this in city after city after city. We look in New York City and we see uh, or New York State, rather, and we look at political prisoners who have aged, who, who should have aged out people who have no harm to anyone, people who by any reasonable measure uh, uh, should be home and and, and and they're not home. And mm-hmm. and this is all because of the political piece. So one of the things I think to answer your what do we do question, which is the question that you always push me to, which is both necessary and so hard for me because I'm sometimes too abstract, is one, we have to keep our eyes on them. Two, we have to be campaigning on that, right? We have never made a political demand uh, in an election, I'm talking about as a, as a body politic, the, the, the left yeah. hand we have, but we have never said bring our, our people home during COVID. They 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 finally the, the state suddenly said, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe we can say, maybe we can send home some of these people who, who are over 65. Maybe we can send home some of these nonviolent drug offenders. Not nearly enough, but when it was in the state's interest, they suddenly realized that decarceration is possible before it was impossible. Mm-hmm. Why our political prisoners shouldn't be in that same conversation and and we we've worked and we've struggled shout out to uh, Malcolm X grassroots uh MXGM in um in, in New York in particular and folk like Lumumba and Monifa Bandele who have fought to do that work consi- among in, in in community with others to get that work done and for me that's part of it. but that's a more expansive imagination mm-hmm. that means we have to be willing to because some of us have said that those people like Mumia well that, that's a, that's an un, that's an unworkable thing that's unimaginable we can't get there and we can't Dude, we are at a moment, like you said, we are at a moment where we can dream as ambitiously and audaciously as necessary, just like our ancestors did under with fewer resources. And and and, and, oh. and I mean, it just ain't no reason for us not to dream this radically and, and do this work. That's right. You said like people will say that it's unworkable. That's what these people are telling us right now about so much <laughs> that it's unworkable. Everything. Right. Everything is unworkable. It's not possible to get members of move of the move nine out. Uh, and look what people have done. They home. My they goodness. Home. Mike Africa home. They, yes. they home. They are home. And Joshua Williams, I couldn't remember his last name. I'm so terrible. He's going to come home too. He's going to come home. Um, our people, we can get our people home. And it's like so much of it is believing. My comrade Hiram is one of the people who's always telling me to get it together when it comes to our political prisoners. Um that they can actually come home and that we actually have to have the will to fight for it. And so I, I want us to talk about um, this thing that comes up a lot. And, you know, I, I'm trying to be right and not make any jokes because, you know, who we respectively supported during the Democratic president's <laughs> primary. I'm trying to keep it together and frame this question in a non-shady way. But you know, there's always this thing that comes up about class and the importance of class, the centralization of, of workers and class in um, how we build our movements 
uh, what we think should be prioritized and not. So for people who are like, yo, I'm in labor or yo, um, I'm just a regular, regular working class person or I'm just trying to you know, like take care of my family. And they don't even call. I don't know anybody who actually calls themselves uh, working class but whatever. Um, <laughs> what do we say to folks? Right. What is how can they see themselves in this work that is happening right now and what's at stake for them? Uh, It's something that, you know, that I'm really curious about uh, because I don't see a socialist like society where prisons exist. I don't know how that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think, I think there's two things here. Again, I I think first, even in in the context of a socialist future, we still have to decriminalize our imagination. Right. We have to find a way to, to think about what what political futures and, and, and social futures look like where we have other ways of addressing harm where we have other ways of, of, of resolving conflict. Because if we don't do that, then we can we can have a, a new set of economic arrangements that still smuggle in um, um, these these types of logics, these carceral yep. logics. Um, because the, as Dylan Rodriguez teaches us, these are regimes. These are these, this is a prison mm-hmm. regime. These are these are these are very deeply rooted structures. Um, but but in terms of what to tell the, the working class and 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 working folk, uh, some of those folk who might be uh, similar to folk I supported um, and who who may <laughs> um, and I appreciate the effort. Um, uh, I I think that. Uh, this is this is the, this is the fundamental challenge that Du Bois wrestled with in the context of slavery, mm-hmm. uh, as he was as he was as he was writing history of slavery, and particularly the Reconstruction period. Du Bois talked about um, how it was undoubtedly in the white working class, the white workers, interest to end slavery, mm-hmm. um, that the planning class, the managerial class, was exploiting their labor. And as long as you had an exploited class of 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 African of enslaved Africans doing the work uh, for nothing, unpaid, then the the white worker was always going to be priced out of the market. The white worker was never going to get living wages because there's someone who's doing it cheaper um, or for for nothing, right? And so it is in the economic interest of the white worker to also. Um, in, in the project of slavery. And so this, this should be an easy thing to do, right? When you have an exploit, such an easy exploitable class. Um, and then Du Bois gets into this intersection of race and, and, and class, right? And, and we start talking about how it's not just the pro- how the, the project of racial capitalism is also built on these ideological dimensions, you know, and, and, and I mean, ideological in the Marxist sense and, 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 and say, wait a minute now, the, the, there's a way that there's been a cultural superstructure um, um, that, has built around this such that white folk believe that whiteness, as Cheryl Harris would later teacher, is property. So they're investing in whiteness rather than their own economic possibilities. Mm-hmm. So, so, so they're actually doubling down on these contradictions because they think that there's a greater social benefit by by allowing the project of slavery to persist than there is from dismantling it. And similarly, if we can convince if we can convince the white working class that there is a criminal class. And we can convince the, convince the black middle class. There's a criminal class. There's a group of people who belong there, right? That these aren't mm-hmm. people who make bad choices, but these are bad people. Bad people, right? And where do bad people go? They we need we need them away from us over there. Hide them, erase them. Okay. You know, then the white working class will also be forced to have the same kind of reckoning 
that Du Bois is, is challenging us to think about in the Reconstruction era, and 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 they are rec- we, we are having that, and so and so they, they they understand the job flight, they understand capital flight, they understand the one percent and the one percent of the one percent and the ways that, that 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 the billionaire class has been exploited. But let's use COVID nineteen as a concrete example because I don't want to be too abstract. You know, there's a way that. We, we can very easily see in the first quarter of 2020, the, the billionaire class, their wealth went up a ridiculous amount. We could look at the owner of Amazon. Bezos made $24 billion this year, right? Um, the billionaire class, class, at the same time that when 20 million people are applying, are applying for unemployment, we, 21%, of, 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 21% of Americans are moving into, into statistical poverty, right? And technical poverty, and they've already lived below living wages before that. So what's my point? My point is we the the left and 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 we can say the Bernie left because I you know I supported Bernie. Um, you ain't have to say it. You know there are many many of my comrades in, that, in those circles who I'm talking to and building with who I love and I think are, are right on many of these issues. They, they they recognize that contradiction and they say we got to do something to dismantle that. But the conversation about the prison becomes one of reform and regulation. Too often, not all Bernie supporters, but because but too right. often one of reform and regulation, not one of abolition. When the very existence of these prisons provides this, the, 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 the undergirding for that, too. It's not just private health care companies that made money off COVID. It was also the, 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 the fact that you have prisoners in New York State making no more than 21 cents an hour that are making sanitizer and masks yes. at the, and, and, and distributing it to the state at the same time that they're dying from these diseases because they, they, they have 10 percent infection rates. One federal prison has 70 percent of the people incarcerated tested positive. I mean, so th- that's a very clear exploited class that is serving a- as the front line for, 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 for vulture capitalism. And so that's the reality. And so even if you don't give a shit about prison, even if you, if you believe in lock up and throw away the key, it's not in your economic interest to see it's the really not. No. It's really not. And 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 Ruthie Gilmore, Ruth, Ruth Gilmore talks about the economic impact of prison. Like literally, when you think about what it takes to um, to bring in water, to bring in electricity, um, to and we also know that many people in prison, like they are also forced to do farm labor as well. Like they, it's it's, it's a it's a thick thick thing. The environmental impact, the things that have to be taken down in order to put prisons up, like literally like actual earth that needs to be taken down and moved in order to build prisons up. All of those things uh, become concentrated. And I think about how the, 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 the colonization of the Americas, the genocide of indigenous people here actually furthered and impacted the climate. Like actually further climate like impacted all these things, like it impacted the ecosystem, this mass shift of people, removal of people, killing of people. And I'm not one to say like things are the same. I think it's important to find those connections, um, particularly in these conversations, that none of these things are just out in the ether, but they are connected and they are also intentional. Like this stuff was not on accident how we got here today. And when I think about elect elections and electoral politics, I always hear people say, white folks, out, poor white folks, cash poor white folks or unemployed white folks are voting against their interests. No, no. People have multiple sets of interests. Right. White supremacy is a, an interest. It is a thing to have. Right? Yeah. It is real. Anti-blackness is an interest. 
control and domination over people is an interest. Like, um, what do they call it? Rule of law or whatever the Democrats said they were going to do. T- being tough on crime. Yes. It's a set of interests. Um, and those things show up in folks' political choices. And all po- politics is not just at the voting booth, right? You know, I vote. I vote in every election. I've been voting since I was 18. I'm 34 years old now. I'm a vote in November. <laughs> I'm a vote reluctantly. I know. Hold my nose and go vote. <laughs> um, you know, and so since you added yourself who you supported, I mean, I supported Elizabeth Warren in this election. And she was by no means a, a perfect candidate. But what I found to um to be compelling about participating in electoral politics in this particular moment is to see what is possible to experiment to push in a system that we know is not actually set up for us. And I think what I learned from that can, much of that can be applied to this long-term, this political vision and strategy for abolition is that even when people tell you that this thing, this thing that is before you is unchangeable, impenetrable, you can't do nothing about it. And you look up and people are literally turning up across the world saying it has to go right and you know i people have asked a lot over the past couple of days what's different about now than 2014 and i want to know what you think too oh Oh. what do you think first tell me tell me what you think (laughs) you see a difference you know i think that so there are a lot of things that people are saying like oh this is new no it's not we've been de-arresting people since before (laughs) We have people have been, uh, you know, articulating the divest or invest or defund police invest in our communities before today. People have been articulating abolition of the prison industrial complex before today. People have been telling compelling stories before today. But I think what is different in this moment is that we've had six years to reflect and learn lessons from 2014, years to learn from the Baltimore uprising, the Charlotte uprising. Um, what happened uh, in Baton Rouge, uh, the organizing work we did in Chicago. Um, we've had like all these electoral lessons and these, um, or electoral, vic- whatever, if you want to call it a victory, these lessons. And we also like been in the gym practicing. We've been studying. We've been building relationships. And we have people in different positions of power and with resources who are yielding them. like with our people in mind. I think about um, my brother, um, Maurice, uh, who is uh, now the head of the Working Families Party. And what Maurice is over there doing, y'all. Oh my gosh. And I almost call him Maurice Bishop, and he'd probably be happy if I call him Maurice Bishop. (laughs) Not Maurice Bishop, Maurice Mitchell. (laughs) Um, And what he's doing at the Working Families Party and literally moving this, you know, small and mighty <laughs> political party um, to, 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 to be more sense, to center itself more on black liberation as a part of its core strategy. Yeah. And that's major. We got people who, I mean, we got, we, some of the stuff that has happened in the past couple of days, like Planned Parenthood came out in support of defunding the police and investing in our communities. I was like, Oh, and guess who did that? Black feminine, black women made that happen. SEIU 
one of the world's largest labor unions has gotten behind the movement for Black Lives and the, the cause to defund and invest in our communities. Defund police to invest in our communities. Scores of big progressive or the progressive establishment. Now, you know, signing on and saying the thing is a certain political risk that they're taking, but now they actually got to continue to do the work. So I think it's a lot of those things that are shifting, like things that they would drag themselves around and say they couldn't do is now all of a sudden possible. Which no. <laughs> I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think there's, I think you're right. I think there's, I'm hearing, a, I'm seeing a notice. I always get frustrated. And this is something we could probably talk about too. And uh, how we manage the politics of sh- the short term versus the long term. Um, and and I, I'll circle back to that because I want to know what you think about this, as, particularly as an organizer. But I remember we'd be on the ground and people would be shouting to lock cops up. You know, mm-hmm. I remember people were in Baltimore were asking for cops to get higher bails, you know, and it's like I get where that's coming from. Yeah. But that ain't it. Right. Yeah. And to see that in 2014 and to see 2020 where we're calling for defunding and abolition as our as a primary strategy and as a ask as a political demand that's that's like night and day it's yeah. it's, it's amazing but, but but what i also appreciate is is, is you i think and i think you're right is the is your analysis of the why right mm-hmm. um one i think again and i so much of this is, is due to the movement for black lives um and and articulating a robust agenda that wasn't reducible to short term reforms or 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 or, or even long term policy shifts but thinking more broadly and more ambitiously about what we could do and not limiting it to the question of, of police involved shootings, but, but, but saying that there's a more robust conversation about violence and the state's role in producing and sustaining um, violence, right? And th- that isn't reducible to police shooting us. When I, when I wrote my book, Nobody, part of why I ended it in Flint as opposed to Baltimore was not just because more stuff had happened, but because it was a different type of violence that I wanted us to think about. Similarly, and when we have this COVID piece of the conversation, uh, you know, it's like the COVID backdrop of state violence is, is as significant as uh, what's happening in Minnesota, uh, you know, by police or Atlanta or wherever. And so I think the people are making these connections because the leadership has drawn those connections. The other thing that happened for me is the internationalist piece of it. Right. You know, again, the the, the revival of conversations about how on, 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 across the world, right? We are connected in terms of again, not to your brilliant point uh, in your in your keynote. Not to mean that we are we're all the same. Not to mean that every one size fits all. But to say that we are all bound by a very particular set of circumstances. You know, John Dewey talked about the public as being a set of uh, people drawn to drawn together by a set of externalities outside of their immediate sphere of control, right? So there's a way that we are a public or a community even. Um, because of these externalities outside of our immediate sphere of control. That is to say, capitalism. That is to say, uh, homo and transphobia. That is to say, uh, white supremacy. All these things bind us. Right after the uprisings in Ferguson in January, you and I, um, with with a group of other folk, go to Palestine, right? And I remember when we were inside the state of Israel, and we were at, uh, we were, in fact, we were in Haifa, and we were met with um, Idala, which is one of the human rights organizations, and they were telling the story about a Palestinian uh, person inside of Israel who had been shot by police and the police said he had a weapon. And, 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 and when we, when they found a videotape that showed that the person didn't have a weapon and that the police had dragged them closer to the camera and they were like, can you believe it? And all of us were like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and we were able to see those connections. And, and it's not to say that it's not to say that one state produces the violence of the other. It's to mm-hmm. say that the similarities, mm-hmm. right. 
to talk about the way that these forms of violence and these forms of militarization are are, are global and they're connected. And, and, and we have to think about them in that context and, and we can learn from that, right? So we had the internationalist piece, we had, we had p- radical political education. We, we spent, I love the fact that when you say Ruth Gilmore, people know who it is. I love the fact that right? Davis, people also know our prison's obsolete. They don't, they're not just thinking about the 1970s, right? Yes. So this is the fact that, the fact that um, there's an op-ed in the New York Times this week. Marion Cabas? Marion Cabas, yeah. Uh, on, on, on abolition. That was unimaginable. I remember 10 years, this is the last thing I'll say. I remember 10 years ago, which makes me feel a little bit old. I, 10 years ago, I gave a talk on abolition with Angela. It was about 10 years ago at Gustavus uh, Davis in Minnesota, ironically, Minnesota. Mm. And and people were like, y'all talking about, ab-. when you saw people's faces, when we said we were going to talk about prison abolition. <laughs> but what Angela told me was, she said, Mark, 20 years ago when I would come to campus and talk about prison, not only did they give us funny looks and be funny looks, she said, I wasn't even allowed to have this conversation on campus. Mm. The topic of prison was so taboo that you couldn't even talk about prison in these types of spaces. So to go from that to an uncomfortable abolition conversation to a national and international demand is because of the political education. It's because of international global struggle. I got a, a, a text from uh, Omar Barghouti uh, three days ago one mm-hmm. of the saying, yo, how can we support? What kind of statements should we make? What kind of allyship do you need? What kind of support can we offer? Right? I mean, these are the types of things that weren't happening in 2014. Something was happening in 2014. Yeah. But it's a continuation of decades of struggle. And so for That's me, right. I, I couldn't be, I have never been more certain than I am right now at this juncture in history that we're going to win. I never. Mm. I mean, I didn't imagine in my lifetime that it was gonna pop off like this, and that it would happen in the Midwest. Right? Like I'm so proud of it. Like, <laughs> so the homies in Minneapolis, like they, the work that is happening is oh, like imagine holding an abolitionist line, a black queer feminist abolitionist line in Minneapolis. And in the state of Minnesota, <laughs> and then something like this happens, right? And it's—I don't know who said it, but it's like something about liberation is infectious. Like it's an infectious—it's it's an infectious thing. Like this, this, there's a reason why we have like at protests in 50 states, you know, like all over the place in what over a dozen countries. Like there's a reason that happened. Uh, there's a reason the homies in Puerto Rico, you know, been walking down the street with the guillotine. I mean, they always take it up a notch. <laughs> Puerto Rico, <laughs> firing us all. <laughs> you know, like it's just it's it's amazing. And you you know you you lift it up. I know I'm a hot mess. <laughs> you ain't wrong, though. Parents are watching. <laughs> so, um, you keep you rightfully lift up COVID nineteen and the pandemic. I do not believe that things would be where they are right now were it not for the convergence and the role of, of the pandemic in this. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, uh, folks can make the connections. They were given, many people were given $1,200 to survive a whole pandemic. Like, that's just trash. Right. It's terrible. And, like, seeing the lack of compassion, concern from the, the government that gets our money. I pay a lot of money in taxes every year. I, I would love it if my taxes primarily went to things like healthcare, education, infrastructure, but they are going to like support bombing people, in, incarcerating people, 
surveilling people, all of that stuff. And so this thing is big, and I'm happy that you mentioned um, the the militarism component and, and what it means globally, because it has to be understood as a global struggle. Like, we know that cops here in the U.S. have trained with Israeli cops. Mm. Um, we know that they have, like, swapped techniques and tactics yeah. on how to make us suffer, all of those things. And as someone who, you know, I used to do, every day I used to do base building organizing. Now my organizing has a different shape um, in doing local work and, and national work. And so much even about that is being upended for me, about like what it's supposed to look like. And so I'm curious, Mark, about, you know, what what you want your work to look like in the next several years as the world is changing so much? Yeah, that's like, a, what are you excited about doing? Uh, what are you What are you excited about getting into? I'm excited about a couple. You know, one thing on this COVID thing because it connects to what I'm excited about mm-hmm. is the 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 government showed its hand. You know, the the question of abolition has often been met by so-called pragmatists um, who say, yeah, but how can we, how, it, how can it happen? How can we pay for it? How can we do this? How can we, and what we saw under COVID-19, in the same, same conversation for reparations, right? Oh, it, yeah. How can we afford it? How can we do it? Yeah. How, who we figure out how to give it to? Then COVID-19 hits and suddenly, mm-hmm. part, part of why I think COVID-19 made uh, the perfect backdrop as, as unfortunate as it was to the, uh, this, this rebellion, this season of rebellion and this movement, this latest iteration of a, of a long standing movement um, is because the government's hand was tipped in a way that it normally isn't. That's right. This was one of the f- first pandemics in history where the wealthy were the initial vulnerable. Right. So, so so you got folk coming from, you know, the, the, the kind of racist logics of the, of the Trump administration had people thinking it was coming from China and, and we could just cut off China. But it's like, oh, wait a minute. Folk are in Europe. Oh, these folk were going on studying in Europe. Oh, these folk were going to the, the, the Alps. Oh, these folk were doing it. And so suddenly it was wealth that it, it was mass amounts of wealth coming back here that then became the burden of the poor. Right. Of course, right? The, the poor are always going to take it. But the difference is now America for a blip felt like. It was in this thing in a way that made the rich and the wealthy and the powerful just as vulnerable. And it was at that moment that you saw America find all the money that it can't ever find when you talk reparations. Right. Where we get the money from. There was no time. to ask, You get a check. You get a check. You get a check. Five hundred billion dollars to corporations. Right. Yep. So when you look at the now, it's an, oh, there's money. Oh, oh OK. How do we figure out who gets these checks? How do we figure out who gets PPE, uh, 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 PPP, excuse me, um, uh, PPP loans? How, the government was wildly indiscriminate. Now, part of that is Trump's own inability to manage well. But the other part of it is the government knew that it needed to find the money to resolve this social contradiction because it thought that the people it cared about, not the disposable folk in prisons and nursing homes and in, and in slums across America, but in, in, but but the, the the people it cared about. A sudden Wall Street and white people were vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. and now all of a sudden they found the money. 
They didn't have to say, well, how do we figure it? They just found the money. They made it happen. When when they thought that they were less vulnerable if they if they decarcerated, if they were less vulnerable, if they created protections, if they if they built in medical infrastructure, they did it. And so we know that it's possible. So the next time somebody says to you, oh, I want, you know, you, we can't do universal health care, not insurance like we have now, but universal health care because we can't find the money. They have, they, they find the money. They, they always find, find the money. They always find the resources. And don't let that be the burden. And don't let your inability to answer every specific question mean that it's not doable. Right. That's right. Which is the other part of this. Right. Because um, I may not have the exact detail of the plan, but but I know it's possible because I've seen what's possible. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it gets the backdrop of covid. I'm like, wait a minute. The, the, the people saw a whole lot. They saw them, you know, the idea of a government being able to intervene when it wants to. The government being able to have a social imagine a socialist future when it needed to an abolitionist future when it needed to. So now the question is, how do we organize structures and, and movements and organizations that, that keep the pressure on for those demands? That's right. right. And how do we build institutions to provide, to, to meet the needs of folk uh, who haven't had those needs met by the state? Those are the two things that I keep thinking about. And so when I started Uncle Bobby's and the People's Education Center in Philly, my goal was to meet some needs. But now I'm like, shit, man, I've been dreaming. I need this. I've been scaling down my dreams, too. I need to think more broadly and ambitiously about how we can meet the people's needs. And so for me, the next years, it's about supporting organizations. And obviously, it's about this. The abolitionist project is, is, is critical to me, no pun intended. It's central to me. You know, and so whatever I can do to support critical resistance specifically, um, but also the abolitionist movement more broadly in Philadelphia, because I think it's about local action right now for me. It's about saying, how can I do work in Philadelphia? I still do work overseas. I still do work around the country. But what can I build in my city to help do this work of defunding, of, of disempowering and of disarming police? What can I do to dismantle the prison? And what kind of institutions can I build to organize and systematize those demands so that we can get this thing done? That, that for me is like the most urgent thing. Now, you do a million things anyway, and you organize anyway, and you about to get this whole PhD thing, but which, which is so dope, I'm so proud of you. But like what, Thank you. how do you imagine you're working in the next few years? Yeah, that's that's a great question uh, for me. I'm like, oh, how do I even answer it? I've been sitting here listening to you. I'm like, how am I going to answer this question? Um, because I get so much energy from supporting Black people who are trying to build stuff. Because I'm a builder. I love to build. Yeah, I love to build things. I also think of myself, like I'm into alchemy, movement alchemy um, in particular. So I'm like, okay, how can I support people in ways that reflect what I've learned from doing this work now for like it's a little bit over 15 years activism and organizing after being one of the many people who helped build BYP 100 um, and working like across issues and I decided I wanted to go back into the into the gym to study to you know to practice I got stuff I want to learn there's so many questions that I have about um how are, eco- like, what is the type of economy we want to have? Like, what will that actually look like? What would a Black feminist political economy even mean? Um, what is the role of reparations in that? Um, what, how, how does cultural work fit into that? Mm-hmm. I have so many questions, um, especially as I'm getting more into creative work. It's like, oh, I want to be able to reach people in ways that don't necessarily like, hit them on the head. Well, they may not join a conversation like this, but maybe they'll read a novel. So I'm working on a novel right now. I'm like, okay, so how do I politicize people 
in various ways and tell stories. Mm. I'm a storyteller at the end of the day. And I think good organizers are good storytellers. Um, And I think a lot of black people are really great storytellers, especially when we're talking shit about something like these really good storytellers. And my friend Fresco, she says that black people are inherently creative. Um, And I'm like, yo, you know, okay. I mean, she thinks black people can do everything and like are like superheroes a lot of the time. So I take a lot of cues from her. Um, And so I'm going to continue to, I'm work like I'm working on this novel. I'm going to continue to write poetry. I'm going to go to school this fall <laughs> um, and, you know, work towards my PhD. I mean, there's so many things I want to do personally too. Um, this work is really hard. It's really hard, no matter what segment of it you're in. Yes. And people always ask me, how do you take care of yourself? And I'd be like, child, I literally have to use 20 different things on any given day <laughs> to maintain my wellness. It takes me, it takes therapy, it takes my friends, my family, it, it takes a whole bunch of stuff. And so it's I mean it's continuing to cultivate my own black life and you know sharpen myself. Cause there's still stuff that I want to learn and I don't know about. Wow. That's enough. That's enough. I I think about what's on Robin Kelly's, um, I think about what's on Robin Kelly's uh, desk. He said, he said he writes the three words, love, study, struggle. Love, study, struggle. Um, And I think um, that's our, that's our challenge right now. Mm-hmm. You know, at all moments, and you know, loving our way through this work, being fueled by revolutionary love, engaging deep forms of study. You know, whether it's getting your PhD or um, or, or, or whatever, um, but also um, and, and staying active in the struggle and in all the ways that that can that that can emerge. Let me let me ask you how because there are a lot of people on the ground who are doing abolitionist work, who are doing other forms of radical work, who feel like they don't have time to go to school, who don't feel like that, that this moment, this step back to study is itself, they feel like they're neglecting a movement as opposed to contributing to it by doing that. How did you make the decision to kind of shift how you how you think about what you do? Yeah, so I feel like I like hit a, a, a if not a wall or something, well, I should back up. When I moved back home in 2013, I was like, I'm going to study political science with Dr. Kathy Cohen. Like, that's what I just knew. And this was in 2013. And mm. then BYP 100 happened in the aftermath of, of George Zimmerman being found not guilty in the killing of Trayvon Martin. We decided to build a national organization for young Black people. Um, and I put it on hold because I was always deeply curious. I'm a nerd, like I said, and I love my, I'm a history lover. I, I I can sit in the archives, like I can sit in a library. I've, I've, reading has always been a thing for me. And the people who train me up in organizing have always emphasized that, like the importance of rigor and discipline with study. And, you know, there's always this conversation and movement about theory and practice. Mm. Well, as a Black feminist, I am super clear that Black feminists inside and outside of the academy have always done both at the same time. They've always like developed theory. Theory is not solely in the domain of the academy. 
and they have also done the, the done the work, like done the things. And so that intersection of, pra- of practice and theory being praxis, that's a you know, fancy word that somebody came up with, um, is something that, you know, I, I, I think I thrive within. And in a movement towards creating a new world, right, which is what abolition, the PIC abolition is about, is transforming power relations, building a new world, and looking very squarely at how we deal with punishment or how we deal with conflict, violence, and harm, we got to know what came before us. We got to know who and what came before us and what that thinking was and value it. Because that's, that's a part of our story um, within the Black radical tradition as Black people. Um, and seeing ourselves, I think it also allows us to see ourselves in a change and that it wasn't just like these single, like, amazing leaders. Like, I'm not Ella Baker. But like, Ella Baker trained up a whole bunch of other organizers. You don't have to be Septima Clark. You don't have to be um, Marcus Garvey, Maurice Bishop, um, Malcolm X. You don't have to be them in order to like do this work and be like do significant things or things that just matter to folks. And so there's no way for me to know those things if I don't spend time studying. And studying also means like sitting at the feet of elders and listening to them. Elders play a major role and our work is always intergenerational. It's not ever, even if it's young people led, it is always intergenerational. And Dr. Bob Ramsey, uh, Dr. Beth Ritchie, um, Andrea Ritchie, Kathy Cohen, I mean, Miss Major, Barbara Smith, like all these people. Um, Kenya, he, I'm not calling you an elder Kenyan, but Kenya Farrell is older than me. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't come cuss me out, Kenya. Um, but like, I learned from all of these people. Mark, I learned from you too. You ain't an elder yet. You ain't old enough to be an elder. <laughs> good, good, good. Good. Right. I, I feel great, but I don't feel old yet. I don't feel elder status yet. Yeah. So it's like all of those things. So why the Academy is just like is a, a particular institution, my study and your study and your learning can be so much bigger than that. Like, when is the last time you had a conversation with someone twice your age? When is the last time you had a conversation with someone half your age? You know, like, to just listen. Mm -hmm. And that is study. That is listening. And then going back and looking things up and reading. And I also study through film. I love watching films of all kinds. So I think it's all of that. You ain't got to go back to school to learn. Um, But self-study and community study is important. The last thing I'm going to say on this is it grinds my gears when I hear people in movement talk about or assume that everyday people can't understand complex ideas. Mm. It's a lie. It's condescending. It's wrong. It's false. Like, it is about taking time. It is about breaking things down. It is about providing things in multiple languages. It is about teaching in multiple ways, through movement, through visuals, through auditory things, all those things. Our people can understand anything. And these ideas also come out of us and our people. Let me ask you another thing, because I, I I went to, I didn't go, because uh, so, uh, but I, I watched, there was a, a rally uh, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually Divine Nine rally. So it was like the Black Greek letter organizations were there. And when I saw the photos come back, that's when I made a video about, like, stop taking pictures with the police, because I was like, Y'all got, got kneeling and taking these photos. But what was interesting was a lot of the people who were at this rally 
were not the people who normally come to the, the events that I that we are, that we have here in Philadelphia. It, 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 it right had become mainstreamed, and it started to feel like a, a, an a IG event and a political and, and, and a social event rather than you know part of part of a movement, uh, a movement that had a coherent political into it. And the abolition talk and the defunding talk seemed to be shifting, downshifting, and it became more reform and have nicer cops again. And and then at the same time, and I, I don't mean this with any shade at all, there were um, other activists from around the country who had partnered with organizations to start organizations to come up with plans um, to, to, to respond to law enforcement um, that were, I, I think, appropriately criticized for ways that they would actually ultimately re- Re- yeah. re- reinforce the, the the presence of the police and funding of the police. So I say all that to say, what is your fear about these movements being co-opted? Mm-hmm. What is your fear that this rap this moment of radical possibility will become a moment of just liberal reform again? Mm-hmm. Does that worry you, especially as an organizer? Yeah, um, I think it's it's a reality. It's something that we should expect, that we should anticipate in our strategy. That anytime we move this far uh, to to the left or however you want to think about it, not only is the state going to come in with repression, excuse me, we're also going to see the media double down. Literally, Mark, they are saying that they don't understand the word defund. (laughs) Or, Or like, you know defund is not the right word. No, it's what we mean. Like, it's, it's, it's what we talking about here. Um, and that's media, that's li- like liberals. All of them are coming back. Like, and that, that, that is a part of the, the co-optation and the repression of, of, of radical movement work. When people act as though they're confused about words that are very, very clear, and like this is not a this is not a complicated word. It's very very specific. Um, then that tells me that oh okay, this is what y'all are doing. You are trying to repress what we're doing. And in, in many cases, I've seen black liberals like attempt to define it and actually define it not in the way at all that we're taught. They don't mean get rid of the police. They don't mean really reduce the police. They just want to shave off some of that six billion dollars that NYPD gets. Or right. <laughs> just under two billion dollars that the Chicago Police Department gets every single year. Um, no, no, we coming for what King said. We coming to get our checks. Yeah. We <laughs> we are actually coming to get our checks, our coins, and we mean for all of us. When we win universal health care in this country, it is not just going to be for Black folks. It's not just going to be for the folks who showed up to the protest or to the rally or signed the petition phone bank voted for the elected official who supported universal health care. It's universal. We're gonna all get it. It's for everybody. Even the cops. The cops even get access since they need mental health care, you know, the 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 due to the rigors of the job, come get this universal uh, health care with the rest of us. Come get it. Come get this you know, this public health care with the rest of us. And so co-optation is real. It's a thing. And I just I just have a level of, um, I don't know, like, let's go get this about it, like, right now. Let's do it. Because um, like you said earlier, if if there is any time to go full out for this thing, now is the time. It's, it's, it's the time. I think about our elders in, like, the Black Liberation Army and the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. 
who were like, we just felt that revolution was like around the corner, that it was about to happen. I think we owe it to them to make this real. And know, and also know that there's going to be limitations in it. And we may not get it all like right now, but we should sure as hell fight for it. Act like we're going to get it because we're not going to get anything we don't organize for. They're not going to give us nothing. And so I think we, we owe it to them. We owe it to Mumia. We owe it to Asada. We owe it to Harriet. We owe it to our grandparents. We owe it to ourselves to like take this seriously and win the stuff that our people deserve. Look, you 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 said you said the word right there. I I, I ain't got nothing to add to that. That's uh, I, I think that's it. We owe it. We have to do it, and we and we're going to be victorious. You know, I'm so glad we had a time to talk. I'm glad we had a chance to talk. This was fun, and for everybody out there, and I know you're going to make the pitch to yeah. the world um, <laughs> to, to help support this amazing um, organization. But I you know I just want to say, you know, critical resistance has meant so much to me. Um, in my intellectual formation, in my political formation, um, I've been taught by 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 critical resistance. I've been taught um, by by those who work every day, whether it's Dylan Rodriguez, whether it's Angela Davis. I'm mean, going down a list of folk, uh, and, and and I I don't, I don't think I hope when the final story on this movement is told, and on this moment in history is told, we don't sell short just how much um, critical resistance. Uh, offered us. And and honestly, um, in the same way that I think we owe it to our elders to keep fighting, I think we should do our best with whatever means we have um, to support critical resistance in all the ways um, that it needs to be supported because of the, 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 the not just the, the, not just because of a debt, but because of the work that continues to be done every single day to dismantle the prison industrial complex. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, we came here, of course, to talk about and to celebrate Juneteenth and to explore what is happening in this world right now and even celebrate the resistance of people all around the world, you know, toppling monuments of imperialism and white supremacy, anti-blackness, patriarchy, like literally toppling monuments. And critical resistance has been a core part of not just our political development, but also like victories as, as were laid out at the very top of this event wins for our people. And so we need everybody to dig in as far as you can. It could be $5, it could be $5,000 because some of y'all might have that on this, on this, in this event. You may have tall paper. <laughs> to dig in, go to criticalresistance.org and donate. Donate so that they can continue their work. Most of this work, organization's work is funded by grassroots dollars. Grassroots dollars. So go ahead and go to the website. And donate. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to hand you. it back over. Thank you so much to Charlene and Mark um, and to everyone who's tuned in. This has been an incredible conversation. And there was a lot of terrain that was covered. And so I want to just remind folks that this has been recorded. Um, Mark and Charlene spent a lot of time talking about study and the rigor and discipline that's required of this moment and the moments moving forward. And so study here, you know, rewatch this, this, uh, this amazing event and have your friends watch it, have your parents watch it, have your cousins watch it, right? Because there's a lot here. Um, I think close to a thousand people have joined us tonight and that's incredible. Wow. And um, I want to, you know, just really highlight that because 
this is not a moment. This is a movement that has spanned decades and generations. And while a lot of our elders were named, a lot of folks were named in this work, this work carries forward by those that are unknown, right? By you out there that continue to organize, that continue to educate, that continue to agitate, and that continue to stay politically clear. So we wouldn't be in this moment without all of you continuing to uphold all of those things and to push and to push and to be clear in what we're trying to do and the goals we're trying to reach around true liberation. Um, I just want to lift up one thing that um, so many things have been shared tonight, but this concept of a Black radical imagination is so crucial to where we are right now. And so how do we move forward in this moment? We can move forward in a lot of ways, but if we're not imagining the world that we can actually live in, if we're not practicing in that imagination, then we will have fallen more steps behind than, than, we, than, you know, than we should. So keep imagining, take time to imagine, don't dismiss it, right? And then practice, do that work. And we're seeing it happen all over right now. And this is a moment where we're just seeing that amplified, but continue to imagine and to know that you are part of a larger tradition, a larger history of work that has got, it to, got us to this point. So I'm gonna pass it on to um, Rahana right now. Yeah, thank you for that, Maisha. I just want to echo. Um, this has been, I think the word that's coming to mind has been nourishing. This has been so good to to hear you in conversation. And I want to uplift also that Charlene and Mark both talked about the importance of seeing this as a global movement. And that even, you know, in our Black radical tradition, in our Black liberation movements, we have a history and a legacy of working towards Black liberation in through an internationalist lens. And that this is a global struggle. And that Juneteenth was a turning point. Right. And that now we're here and we're at a turning point. And even with the protests popping up, we've seen marches in what, 18 countries going on like this is a global movement for black lives and black liberation. Um, and yeah, everyone hit the gym, start studying. I love that. I love that. So I'm going to take us through, make sure that we're thanking everyone. Mark and Charlene, thank you so much. This was this was nourishing. It was generative. Um Folks, watch this again and again. Share it with your your friends, your cousins, your family, your coworkers. Um, this has really been wonderful. I also want to thank all of our movement partners that Critical Resistance works in coalition with regularly. Truly, all of our wins absolutely could not happen without your work. Abolition is a collective struggle. So thank you. Thank you to all of our event sponsors for your support. Um, we were able to bring a ton of people into the room and generate grassroots funds for our work. So thank you to those folks. Um, we saw really beautiful videos from the Black Organizing Project and All of Us Are None. Thank you for your critical work to remove police for, from schools and to fight for the rights of formerly incarcerated people. Um, we also saw some really amazing photos of the work of CCWP and RAP. They're doing critical work today. Check back through the slides and we're going to run through them again at the end so you can look up their work to bring our elderly folks home, to bring our elders who are still incarcerated today. It's urgent that we support their work and get our people home. So thank you to those folks. I also want to shout out the youth. We had um, an album created by the Youth Organizing Collective. So the music that we've been enjoying that we're going to play again was off of their album called The Report Back. Thank you for your contributions there. I've loved the intergenerational contributions that we've seen here tonight. It's been really, really special. And then lastly, before we close out and hit those slides again so that you can look through 
you know, look at our movement sponsors list, list, look up those organizations, learn about their work, all the people that that folks have mentioned tonight, learn about their work. Um, And you all can join up together again next week. We had our uh, movement partners and sponsors, the Eastside Arts Alliance and the Quarantine Virtual Open Mic are creating a special Juneteenth, celebrating Juneteenth edition event on Wednesday next week. So you can go to their open mic night. The Facebook invite is also going to be on those slides. And John, maybe you can flash it now too. So thank you so much. Again, this has been a really special moment and appreciate everybody tuning in. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.